0: coming up on venture voice.
1: I felt that was like my first lesson in real hardcore capitalism. I mean, uh, basically you're talking to a guy who's telling you, "Steve, you're brilliant. Uh you deserve a lot of money, but uh you know, your mom and your friends at Newsday, well, they invested their money, you haven't made any money yet, so they get their money back with no gain." We said no to that. We said no to a couple of deals like that because We felt that we were a success, that we were going to be able to make money, and we didn't want to sell our friends uh, down the river. I would never betray people like that. I couldn't uh, live with myself if I did. We were able to offer our investors a way out in which they made almost five times what they invested. So there was a a very happy moment when we had all our investors here at the brewery and we passed out big checks uh, to the ones who wanted the checks. And the ones who didn't, we told them, okay, you, you know, put your seatbelts on. Here we go again.
0: Welcome to Venture Voice. This is Greg Gallant. I'm excited to re-release this interview I did with the founder and CEO of Brooklyn Brewery back from 2006. Steve Hindi recently announced his retirement, so I figured now would be the perfect time to go back in time and hear about Brooklyn Brewery. Today, Brooklyn is a very safe place, and microbreweries are everywhere. But back in 1988, it was rare to find a microbrewery. There were none in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn was a very different place. I found Steve's journey from being a journalist to starting a brewery a great story of tenacity, Brooklyn Brewery really struggled for quite a number of years before it really found its footing and became successful. Since I recorded this interview back in 2006, I launched Muckrack, which is a journalism platform and PR software suite that companies use to contact journalists. So it's fun reflecting upon how a journalist can transform himself into a brewer. Enjoy. Enjoy. Steve, welcome to Venture Voice. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your career before becoming a brewery owner, and I believe you started out as a journalist and a foreign correspondent.
1: Yeah, for the first 15 years of my working life, I I was a reporter. I started out working for small newspapers in upstate New York, and eventually I worked my way down to New York City. I worked for a paper in White Plains for a while. And then I worked for a paper in Passaic, New Jersey. And about the mid-70s, I was fortunate to get a job with the Associated Press in Newark, New Jersey. Then uh, after a couple years with AP, uh, somehow I got up in my head I wanted to cover a war. And that's something you can do if you work for AP. So uh, I heard that the uh, AP correspondent in Beirut was uh, very uh, itchy to get out of there. So I started studying Arabic on my own and uh, let it be known that I wanted to go to the Middle East. And turns out there aren't that many people who want to go to the Middle East. <laughs> so I got to be uh, at the head of the line a little quicker than I expected. And it was barely a year year and three months later that I landed in Beirut as the Middle East correspondent for AP, and that was 1979. And I covered uh, some amazing stories. Uh, the Iranian Revolution, I was in Tehran. Uh, When Ayatollah Khomeini came to power, I got thrown out of Iran after the hostages were taken. Then I went back in the next year with the Iraqi army when they invaded Iran, and I covered the Iran-Iraq war. In Lebanon, you know, we had the civil war ongoing there. We had the Israeli invasion in 1982, uh, the massacres in the refugee camps. I covered those stories. I moved to Cairo, And I was sitting behind President Sadat when he was assassinated in in Cairo. So uh, it was a pretty amazing uh, five and a half, six years uh, in the Middle East. Then uh, my wife got fed up with being the wife of a war correspondent. Uh, My next post would have been in Manila, the Philippines, where President Marcos was in trouble. And uh, Ellen said, uh, there's no way I'm going to the Philippines with two kids. We had two kids by that time. And I ended up giving it up and coming back to the States with her in in 1984. While I was in the Middle East, I met these diplomats who worked in Saudi Arabia, American diplomats. They have Islamic law in Saudi Arabia. You can't buy alcoholic beverages. All the foreigners make their own beer. Uh, So I got interested in making my own beer. And uh, when I came back to the States, I went to work for Newsday, the newspaper on Long Island. And I was making beer at home, serving it to all my friends, my neighbors actually on Saturdays at Newsday when all the big uh, editors were gone, when we closed the paper, I would crack out my homebrew and uh, we'd all sample it. And eventually um, I started reading about these small breweries out on the West Coast and, uh, you know, got carried away with my hobby. Ah,
0: So back when you were a foreign correspondent, what do you like about that or did you like it and what excited you about that job?
1: Yeah, I love foreign uh, reporting. I mean, it's, it's so uh, intense uh, being there when big historical events are happening. It's uh, incredibly uh, exhilarating. It's also important to tell these stories the right way to the American public. It's very difficult to do that. you know. Um, most foreign correspondents don't speak the language of the countries they're covering. I spoke Arabic fairly well, well enough to get around, not well enough to write or, or really to read it, but most American correspondents did not. And I didn't really have that much training about the Middle East, and most correspondents don't, but I did study it once I got there and did my best to uh, do a good job uh, reporting. It's a very exciting life, uh, going from revolution to war to assassination to revolution. But it's also a very tough life. I mean, foreign correspondents tend to uh, develop some pretty bad personal habits, uh, much worse than beer salesmen, I can attest. And uh, I'm not sure I would recommend it as a career, except for someone who really likes adventure.
0: So it sounds like you were looking for adventure again once you got back to America.
1: The job I had at Newsday was uh, should have been a dream job. Uh, You know, at that time, Newsday had like eight foreign correspondents. I was working with them. I got to travel when I wanted to every now and then. But it wasn't the same as being out in the field and actually reporting. And reporting is the real heart and soul of journalism. So, um, you know, I got antsy in that job. And reading about these small breweries out on the West Coast and uh, knowing that uh, Brooklyn has an amazing history of brewing. I mean, the last two big breweries in Brooklyn had closed in 1976, uh, Schaefer and Rheingold. It just seemed to me that Brooklyn would be a great place to start one of these microbreweries. So that's what I did. And uh, it's been a great adventure building the company. It's been 18 years now. I've learned uh, so much. It, entrepreneurship really takes all the creativity and all the resources uh, that you have.
0: So why, why did all these uh, other breweries go out of business? Do you think, was there a reason for that? And did that scare you? You know, Was there this feeling that, Brooklyn could no longer support
1: breweries? The old Brooklyn breweries were all family businesses, all of them German, German families. And they were really old businesses. So the factories were kind of uh, very outmoded technology. And uh, they were competing against uh, breweries like Anheuser-Busch or Miller In places like St. Louis and uh, Milwaukee, which are a lot cheaper places to do business than New York City, there were a lot of reasons why the old breweries went out, you know, uh, high cost of virtually everything, you know, land, labor, resources, utilities. But also, I met a lot of the old families, and there was really a failure of will, you know, a third generation of a family that uh, becomes very wealthy. They have investments in things other than the brewing industry. You know, they're living in the suburbs. They kind of look at the brewery as this dirty old business down in Brooklyn that Grandpa ran. And uh, a lot of them just kind of lost interest, lost the passion that it takes to, to brew good beer.
0: So you had the passion, but you had no experience whatsoever in brewery or in owning a business. You just came back from a uh, foreign correspondence. What's step number one? How do you even go about starting a brewery?
1: I didn't have the greatest resume for starting a brewery. Um, my downstairs neighbor in Brooklyn was named Tom Potter. He was a banker. Uh, had an MBA, uh, very smart guy. Went to Yale and his MBA from Columbia. He was working as a um, uh, vice president at City Ban- or at uh, Chemical Bank, uh, doing loans, real estate loans. And he too was antsy uh, in his job. He had always wanted to start his own business. But I have to say that at first when I told him, uh, suggested we start a brewery, he thought I was nuts. Because, you know, what he knew of the brewing industry was the big were getting bigger and the small were getting stamped out, which is really the way things were going uh, from Prohibition, you know, basically through like the mid-1980s. But also at that time, people were starting to drink better beers, more expensive beers, in bigger and bigger numbers. And the microbrewing industry basically was built around making beers that would compete with imported beers at the same price as imported beers. Eventually, I convinced Tom that that could be a business. Actually, I, I did a LexisNexis search when I worked at Newsday one Saturday, and I got a stack of articles about a quarter inch thick that told the story of the growth of the industry out on the West Coast. And that year, 1986, uh, which was the year the Mets won the World Series, Tom went to the Craft Brewers Conference in Portland, Oregon. And uh, he met the 33 small brewers who were then in existence uh, in the whole country. And uh, he came back from that uh, sort of convinced that this could be a real business, that it wasn't just his crazy upstairs neighbor's uh, hobby.
0: So he was convinced that he finally had your partner on board. Now, what, what's the next step for you guys to putting this together, to making this into a business? And now you have two people, I guess, with no experience in beer brewing, right? At least yeah, yeah. in business.
1: <laughs> well, misery loves company. <laughs> it was really a matter of, I felt that I could conceive of what the brewery would be, of sort of the vision of the brewery, the vision of the brand. I needed someone who could uh, do the numbers, you know, could uh, persuade investors that we were going to make money at this thing eventually. And, you know, Tom had learned that in business school. So really the first step was the business plan that we drew up. And Tom basically did the, uh, you know, the numbers, projections uh, for it. And I did sort of the uh, the marketing story about what the brewery was all about, what the brand was all about, trying to tie into the history of brewing in Brooklyn. And uh, we went out, raised money. We raised a half million dollars from family, gave a little bit, but not much. I mean, neither of us is wealthy. A lot of my investors were from Newsday, uh, from the newspaper. I raised more than $100,000 from people in the newsroom. And That's uh, not an easy bunch I
0: imagine I take money from.
1: That's right. And they never let me forget I had taken their money either. But uh, eventually we cobbled together a half million dollars and... And that was the seed money we used to get going.
0: Ah, So how far were you able to go with that? And how far did you think you could go with that? And how far did you go with that?
1: Well, of course, uh, our plan showed that we would use that money uh, to make a fortune. But it didn't really work out that way. I think we next uh, raised more money. It was maybe uh, in that second year, in 1989, we went after more money. We started out brewing in upstate New York under contract, and we did something that not many other microbreweries had done across the country. We distributed our own beer here in New York City. And that means, you know, putting the beer in a truck and uh, going out and delivering it and uh, collecting the money from the customers. In retrospect, looking at it 18 years later, I don't think we would be in business today if we had not done that there have been about 20 other startups in new york city in the last 20 years and virtually all of them are out of business now and i think the difference between them and us is that we distributed our own beer that really helped us build a market it helped us learn the business directly from customers and a lot of times you don't want to hear what customers have to say about you and your company but um you know we did it that way i think it was harder than not distributing your own beer. But I think it was the difference between uh, success and and failure for us.
0: Uh, So what was it the customer feedback? Was it hearing from bartenders that my customers hate this beer? Or was it the ability to persuade more people to take your beer? What exactly was it? Because you'd think that that'd be lack of focus and might be damaging.
1: I think the key to uh, our distribution was that we had direct relationships with the customers. If you're going through a distributor... You never really have that direct connection with the customer. And I think a lot of people bought our beer because they sort of identified with our entrepreneurial uh, spirit, you know. New York City is unusual in that uh, there are a lot of independently owned delis and bars and restaurants. Uh, In a lot of parts of the country, you're dealing with national chain restaurants and, uh, you know, supermarkets. And uh, New York City is kind of unique in that way. And I think having the personal relationship with customers was very important for us in, in selling our product through and in getting feedback uh, about our products and about our, our company.
0: So how much of a challenge was that to build between having to learn how to drive these trucks and go to each store and talk to these bar owners? What was that experience like? Is there any kind of one story that you remember from what it's like going to these bars and selling them on distributing your beer?
1: The The real reason that we decided to distribute our own beer was on the advice of a neighbor of ours, a woman named Sophia Collier, who was a very successful entrepreneur. She founded Soho Natural Soda, which was really the first of uh, the New Age beverages, what later became known as the New Age Beverages. She made all malt, uh, I mean all natural ingredient sodas. And Sophia, I stopped her on the street one day and asked her advice about uh, the brewery we were starting. And we spent a morning talking to her and she said, I know you guys aren't going to want to hear this, but the smartest thing you could do is distribute your own beer because none of the big distributors are going to want to handle a beer uh, with a couple of guys who have great idea, you know, great packaging, but no money. And she told us her story about starting out with Soho and trying to go through a natural food store distributor and failing and then trying to go through a soda distributor and failing, and then trying to go through a beer distributor and failing, and not being able to sell her product until she put it in a van and went out and peddled it herself the way entrepreneurs have been doing in New York City for a couple of hundred years now. So we really took her advice uh, at face value and distributed our own beer in Brooklyn. We also tried to work through distributors on Long Island and in Manhattan. And uh, the only place we had any chance of making money long term was in Brooklyn, where we were doing our our own distribution. It was very difficult. I mean, we we were robbed at one point. We had uh, drivers who uh, took off with our trucks. Our last year in business, we spent $60,000 on parking tickets. You know, New York City is a very difficult place to deliver anything, But we fought our way through that, and we got our brand up to like a half million cases, uh, and then we sold the distribution company to one of those big distributors, because once you get to a half million cases, you know, everyone is ready to take your brand on. And
0: I guess at this point, you're not worried about them saying, we don't want to distribute your beer.
1: Oh, no, no. Our brand is now uh, very valuable uh, here in New York City, because, you know, a half million cases a year. Distributors making six, seven dollars a case—you uh, know—it's a significant amount of uh, gross profit for them. And uh, the big distributors are making all the stops anyway, so it's just more gross profit to put on their trucks.
0: Uh, so backing up now, you were—you had all this money from friends and relatives and people who there was more of a business connection with, and it, it took a while to get this business built. What was that like? That whole time to have. All this money you'd raised kind of hovering over you, all these expenses constantly, and this pressure to sell. What's that feeling like?
1: There is a lot of pressure when uh, you start your own business. I mean, I think uh, Tom and I both felt a great debt of gratitude to our investors. And uh, we always looked forward to the day when we could offer to buy them out or, or buy their stock back. And that day did come, but it took about 14, 15 years before it came. During the uh, those fourteen fifteen years, we had opportunities to uh, basically bring in big investors who would have paid off our small investors. But in most cases, in all cases, they did not want to pay any premium. Basically, they said, "We'll become your partner. We'll pay off your original investors. They don't make any money because you haven't made any money yet. But you guys will make money." And you'll be in a much better position to have a very wealthy uh, investor. I felt that was like my first lesson in real hardcore capitalism. I mean, uh, basically, you're talking to a guy who's telling you, Steve, you're brilliant. Uh, You deserve a lot of money. But, uh, you know, your mom and your friends at Newsday, well, they invested their money. You haven't made any money yet. So they get their money back with no gain. We said no to that. We said no to a couple of deals like that because we felt that we were a success, that we were going to be able to make money, and we didn't want to sell our friends uh, down the river. What I learned, though, uh, about business is that a lot of people do sell their original investors down the river. And in many cases, uh, the notion that getting in on the ground floor in a business is a great uh, thing is a myth uh, because. In a lot of companies, uh, people on the ground floor get crushed uh, by the people on the uh, the floor above, or maybe the fifth floor above, who put in the right money at the right time.
0: Was it hard for you to defend your original investors? I mean, here you are under the gun, someone's willing to hand you that check. How hard is that to say no to?
1: Honestly, it wasn't hard at all. I would never <laughs> betray people like that. I couldn't uh, live with myself if I did. And, uh, you know, in the end, we were able to offer our investors a way out in which they made almost five times what they invested. So there was a, a very happy moment when we had all our investors here at the brewery and we passed out big checks uh, to the ones who wanted the checks. And the ones who didn't, we told them, okay, you, you know, put your seatbelts on. Here we go again. And it's interesting. The ones who didn't were mostly my old journalist friends.
0: Hmm. So I guess you're all a bunch of thrill seekers.
1: I think journalists have a high tolerance for risk.
0: What was the ambition back then when you were talking to these people? I mean, was it just we're going to brew great beer and be a nice small company or was it we're going to go out there and take over the world and put Brooklyn beer all over the country?
1: Well, the original concept was uh, really just to sell in uh, the Brooklyn area. And we envisioned being like a, a success, being like a $5, 6000000 million company with a significant market share here, here in New York. This year will be about twice that, it will be about $12 million, but we're selling uh, from Massachusetts down to uh, Georgia, and we also sell in Japan, Britain, Denmark, Sweden, and we'll go into Finland uh, in June of this year. So it's developed a, a little differently than we imagined, but I feel like um, you know we've been able to deliver on what we promised uh, at the very beginning. And if anything, I feel the opportunity is much larger than uh, maybe we thought it was at the beginning. I think with the name Brooklyn and uh, uh, with the quality of products we have, that we can be a player uh, not just here in the eastern U.S., but uh, in many markets around the world.
0: Can you tell me a bit about some of the key hires that you've had along the way and? You know, who have been the really important people on the team and if you've made any mistakes in terms of building the team.
1: I think early on, uh, one of our best moves was uh, finding a designer who could really do justice to the name Brooklyn. I ended up in the beginning interviewing about 27 different design firms. And I don't mean just on the telephone. I went to visit uh, all kinds of design firms. Because the more I looked into, uh, the label, the logo, um, uh, you know, the positioning of the company, the more I realized how important that was and that, you know, that logo was going to be something that, uh, hopefully we'd have to live with for a long time. And it's still on your shirt right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we love it. So I ended up talking to the best, uh, designers, uh, in New York, which is really the best in the world, um. Jeremiah and Geismar, uh, they did the Mobile Oil logo and a bunch of other great corporate logos. Milton Glaser, who did the I Love New York logo and a million other things you recognize. Pentagram, uh, a world-class design firm based in England, has a huge uh, staff here in New York. And uh, amazingly, we got really good uh, presentations from all these uh, designers. We had to work a little hard to get to Milton Glaser. Uh, The first time uh, I called there, uh, basically his uh, secretary kind of blew me off. And I guess it sort of brought out the journalist in me. I I determined that I was going to get to meet this legendary designer. And eventually I did get to meet him. And eventually we did make a deal with him to do our logo. It really helped us immediately. I mean, we had this logo before we started raising money. Investors were very impressed that we had one of the great designers in the world doing our logo. I think our original brewmaster, Bill Moller, who had been the head brewer at the Schmidt Brewery in Philadelphia, was very important uh, in helping us develop our early recipes and also in, in giving credibility to our, our business plan. And our original uh, salespeople, uh, Mike Vitale, who worked with me on the foreign desk at Newsday, has been here for 19 years now. Mike has uh, done a terrific job uh, as a salesman over the years. We've had a number of other salespeople, many of them very talented people. We've always attracted very good people. I think a lot of people are attracted to the idea of working for a microbrewery. It just seems it really is a fun place to work and a fun product to work with. Early on, uh, shared uh, equity with a lot of uh, our key people. And that has had sort of a mixed results. Going forward from today, we don't share equity very often with people because a lot of of people don't really understand that. They don't don't understand that when you're giving them uh, stock options, you're not giving them money. You're giving them the chance to make money and to share in the growth of a company. And that's kind of hard for a lot of people to grasp, I think. You know, they tend to think of it as compensation or as something automatic. And it's not really. It's not unless the company grows. Uh, otherwise, it's worthless. So we don't use that tool as much as um, we did at the beginning because of the lessons we learned a- about it at the beginning. We use much more sales incentives uh, directly tied to uh, you know different areas where we want to Im- increase sales or increase uh, distribution.
0: When you were giving these out, what do you have in mind is a liquidity event for them? Of course, you know they won't get anything with these options unless something happens with the business? Were you thinking that this could be something that IPOs at some point or would get acquired?
1: Or did you want to own it the whole way through? We always thought that we would uh, go public. There were a number of breweries, uh, small breweries that went public in the mid-90s, like 1996 was really the high point for that. And none of them have performed uh, very well. We were approached by investment bankers who wanted to take us public But we really thought it was not right for us. The timing was not right. We were not big enough to be able to afford all of the uh, administrative work that a public company has to do to satisfy the public markets. And so we ended up passing on that. And I'm really glad we did. I think a lot of the small breweries that went public back then uh, uh, regret it. So it worked out well, and I guess you obviously were able to just offer your investors
0: a chance to buy out
1: for cash. Yes, we were. When we sold the uh, distribution company in uh, 2003, we brought in a significant amount of capital that enabled us to uh, pay off the original investor or offer them a way out. And many employees who had the uh, stock options uh, who had stuck with us cashed in at that time. Some did not. Some kept their uh, money on, on the table. As did
0: I. I guess it's fun to have uh, skin in the game, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have it in any other way.
0: Now, I was reading your book, and there is one page that really struck me with the concept of entrepreneur terror. Can yeah. you tell me a little more about what that is and what it's meant to you?
1: Yeah. Entrepreneurial terror is, uh, it was the name of an article we read in Inc. Magazine back, uh, I think it was 1986, uh, by a guy named Wilson Harrell who at the time was the editor of uh, Inc. Magazine. And he told of, during World War II, being shot down behind enemy lines in German-occupied France and being taken in by the French resistance and working with them to sabotage the Germans. And he told the story about living on a farm in uh, Vichy, France, when uh, every now and then the Germans would come to search the farm to look for people like him. And the French always seemed to have word of it before the Germans got there. So they would bury him in a field, and uh, you know, like six inches below the earth, and they put a little reed up through the uh earth for him to breathe through, a little straw. And uh the Germans would stomp around in the fields, plunging their bayonets into the earth wherever it looked like someone it might have been buried. And Harold said, that's the same feeling you get when you're starting your own business. First time I read that, I was just giddy uh, with laughter—maybe nervous laughter—and <laughs> I remember going to Tom and uh, sharing it with him, and and we just loved that. You know, we were high-fiving over it because we were scared out of our wits. You know, early on, there were many times when we were facing, uh, you know, really uh, difficult uh, financial situations, which is to say, you know, how are we going to make? Payroll this Friday. I think entrepreneurial terror is something that anyone who's thinking of their own business uh, should contemplate. Uh, You should ask yourself, Am I ready for that kind of uh, desperate situation? And what am I going to do?
0: What was the most terrifying moment for you of all the terrifying moments? In
1: 1991, we really were hurting. That was like three years into the business. And, uh, you know, The expenses were too high. The sales were not where we needed them to be. There was a three month period where we didn't get paid, Tom and me. And that was extremely uh, stressful. Uh, You know, we both had mortgages. We both had families. We ended up kiting credit cards to survive. And we both ended up living with that credit card debt for, you know, many years. That was extremely scary. And You know, you didn't want to tell your wife everything, but it was a very difficult time. And then I ended up going back to work for Newsday for a year when the Americans invaded uh, uh, Kuwait to uh, throw Saddam out of Kuwait. And the reason I did was uh, the company really couldn't afford to pay me. So I was working like four to midnight at the newspaper, and in the mornings I would go into the brewery and help Tom out. It was a very difficult time for Tom, too, because even though i was burning the candle at both ends all the pressure the day-to-day pressure of the company was on his shoulders tom's hair actually went gray at that time and then he developed shingles also uh, which you know is an affliction that has to do with uh, that's triggered by stress so it was a very difficult year for him and by comparison i was getting a paycheck he was getting a paycheck too but from brooklyn brewery i was getting a paycheck from newsday which is a little more secure than brooklyn brewery Those were really difficult times. We had other scary moments. We got robbed at gunpoint at one time. You know, we ended up emptying the safe of $30,000 cash to guys with pistols. And we had a run-in with uh, some sort of mob types uh, here in Brooklyn when we were building the brewery who basically were looking for uh, uh, bribes uh, to, uh, you know, allow the project to go on. But none of that was as scary as... uh, as, you know, facing the possibility of failure, which is, to me, the most scary possibility.
0: What got you guys through that? I mean, you both had viable resumes uh, for other businesses. Yeah. I, a lot of people just fold up, you know, have that dream and go back to their day job. What got you through that, terror?
1: We're just very determined. And we felt that we had a strong product. We had a strong package for the product. We are in the right place at the right time, and, and we were going to make it work. I mean, there was never any real discussion of giving up. It takes grit uh, to get through things like that. And you learn a lot about yourself, and, uh, and you learn a lot about how to deal with pressure, how to just kind of get through it.
0: So you can just stare at that balance sheet of $0 and <laughs> no people are walking around looking for that paycheck and just know I got to make this sale to make this week work and that's what it takes.
1: Yeah, it's like, you know, sometimes uh, I like to uh, hike uh, and I like to climb uh, mountains. And um, a lot of times when you feel like you're totally out of energy, out of juice, but you realize you don't have any choice, you're halfway up this mountain. You want to get up to the top to go down the other side, and that's the way home. There's just no question of going back. Uh, you just put one foot in front of the other, and, and somehow you get there. It's sort of the same way, I think, with building a business. You know, You just do the work every day, and luckily, we always paid our people. We never didn't make payroll for our people. We didn't make it for ourselves, but You know, it would have been different if we were telling people we couldn't pay them. That never happened. So where
0: was the turning point in this? Was there a certain point at which you made a certain sale or a check came in and you just knew, okay, we're done worrying, we can grow now, and we'll be able to make our own payrolls?
1: The first year we made money, I think, was 1993. So that was like five years into it. And we didn't make much, but we made a little. And we realized we could do this. But I think it wasn't until like maybe 95 when we raised the capital to build the brewery that we really felt this is going to work. You know, this is going to be a going concern that we're over that hump. There are many other reasons to lose sleep, but I think we left behind the fear of total failure probably about 1995. That must be a uh, nice stage to graduate from. It is. It is. Yeah. And I think most entrepreneurs can tell you something about that. That stage.
0: Right, so, did you ever think it would have been a lot easier to have built a business in some other industry, selling insurance, doing anything but trying to start a brewery?
1: The only business I've ever thought of besides uh, brewing is journalism. I think with new technologies, there are all kinds of possibilities now for uh, people in uh, information in the news business. You know, I worked for Associated Press and What made Associated Press from 1848 when it started was its communications network. I mean, AP had uh, communications all over the world between bureaus and, uh, you know, to New York where where the headquarters was. Well, today, anyone can have that with the internet. And with a satellite phone, you can be virtually anywhere in the world and and broadcast get your story back to a, a desk. That's the only area that kind of fascinates me for business. I went into this because of my passion for brewing, not because I wanted to make a, a zillion dollars. Or, you know, I would not have gone into the insurance business or the even computers or computer chips or, or whatever, no matter what the opportunity. It just would not have interested me. Making beer, I mean, that was something I could put my heart into. And do you still
0: brew your own beer
1: at home? No, the only time I brew my own beer is when the television cameras come and they want to do it like in this, you know, a story about, uh, you know, Steve used to make beer in his kitchen. And I haven't done that in a few years. You know, we make beer here every, every day. So that that's uh, a plenty of show.
0: Yeah, I guess it's hard to uh, maintain the hobbies that become the businesses, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And um so when did you put this building together? Have you you didn't start with uh now you have a quite a large property here in Brooklyn. How'd that come about?
1: Well we uh this brewery we built uh it opened in nineteen ninety six. Uh actually Mayor Giuliani came and uh cut the ribbon when we when we opened the brewery. And uh at that time we had uh, about hundred employees because we still had the distribution company. We had about Seventy-five, eighty thousand 80,000 square feet of warehouse space and uh, the brewery and and a lot of people at that point. Then we sold the distribution. Now we have like 30 employees and we're hoping to uh, sell out the leases we have on some warehouse properties here and kind of shrink back to a better size.
0: Where are you seeing this going now? Like how are the margins today and how do you see the business developing in the next few years?
1: Our margins are very strong. You know, they're much higher than uh, um, the big breweries. And our sales are increasing uh, very rapidly now that we're with a big distributor that reaches a much greater part of the market. Last year, we grew by 18%. The craft beer industry as a whole grew by 9% in the US. Craft beer is growing more rapidly than uh, the big guys. The big guys are actually shrinking in the past year. It's growing faster than wine. It's growing faster than liquor. So it's a very exciting time uh, right now for craft beer. We're hoping to expand our brewery here in Brooklyn. The Bloomberg administration uh, has been talking to us about the possibility of building a new brewery on the waterfront in Brooklyn, down around the end of Atlantic Avenue, and doing a brewery twice as big as what we have here, and doing tours every day, and having a beer garden on the pier. Pier 7, facing lower Manhattan. So it would be a real tourist attraction, a unique Brooklyn uh, tourist attraction, and it'd be one of the great places to have a beer in the world. That sounds like a great opportunity. And yeah. Tell me
0: about that community. You guys have really kind of become entrenched here, and really intertwined in the community.
1: Yeah, we, uh, we've tried from the very beginning to be a good citizen uh, here in Brooklyn. We felt at the beginning of the company that Brooklyn was kind of an undervalued place, that there was a tremendous amount of pride here, and that if we connected with what we saw as really exciting things here in Brooklyn, being, you know, the literary community, the arts community, the sort of new people that were flooding into Brooklyn, and if we connected with through charities and not for profit organizations, with community groups all across Brooklyn, that we could really become a Brooklyn institution, you know, that we could be thought of in the same uh, vein as the Brooklyn Museum or Brooklyn Academy of Music or Brooklyn Botanic Garden or any of the other cultural institutions here. And I think in large part, we've been able to achieve that. Instead of spending money on radio advertising or on uh, television, we spend our money in the community and try to support the community. And I think people have recognized that and, and people pay us back for that.
0: Now, on the flip side, are there ever any hard parts about that? Do you know people come looking to you for money for more events than you can fund? Or have you ever taken political stances in the community on what should or should not be built that might have caused uh, some contention?
1: Yeah, we get many more requests for you know, for free beer and for money than we can fulfill, but we try to spread it around. I mean, last year we donated to more than 150 charities and organizations in Brooklyn. And yes, having a high profile in the community has gotten us into trouble every now and then. Actually, there's something going on right now. We've been very much in favor of developer Bruce Ratner's plan to build a um, huge... Housing and Commercial Complex, and Arena for the New Jersey Nets in downtown Brooklyn. Our sort of high-profile support for this has not pleased uh, some of the opponents of it. So there's actually been some bloggers calling for a boycott of the Brooklyn Brewery because of our support for this development. But, you know, I believe that uh, Bruce Ratner, who developed the Metrotech project in downtown Brooklyn, which is actually... uh, the biggest single investment in the history of Brooklyn, I believe he's done great things here, and I believe this new project called Atlantic Yards is going to be great for Brooklyn. I mean Brooklyn is a wonderful place two and a half million people, but it's also a poor place, you know it always lags behind the city and employment and uh, Brooklyn needs housing, it needs affordable housing, and Ratner has uh, big plans for uh, affordable housing in this new development and Brooklyn needs jobs and and to me, this is the kind of project that uh, is viable in Brooklyn and will help help improve Brooklyn as a place to live. So we have no gr- regrets about supporting this. And actually, the boycott has had not had any impact on our sales. Even a bar that is sort of in the middle of where this project would go and is sort of a rallying point for the boycotters is still pouring our beer. Wow, so I guess uh,
0: these guys are protesting you, uh, maybe can't resist ordering a beer?
1: Oh, I don't think the boycotters are drinking my beer. But actually, I don't think there are many of them. I think it's a pretty small group. And and actually, I've been there and and talked to them. I know who they are. I think most people think it's foolish to think that damaging Brooklyn Brewery is going to have any impact on this $3.5 billion project in Brooklyn. It doesn't make any sense to think that hurting me is going to hurt the big developer.
0: But you are willing to kind of go out on a limb for what you think is right for Brooklyn as opposed to a lot of corporations just kind of see their role serving their customer and not interjecting them in anything uh, controversial.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I guess you know that's just uh, no good deed goes unpunished. I mean that's sort of something you got to face up to if you're going to be involved in the community and uh, we don't have any, any regrets about that. And I think most of our customers you know by far understand where we're coming from They may disagree with us on this, but they're not going to stop drinking our beer because of that.
0: That's great. Well, that just brings me to my final question, which is, do you think it's still a good time to start a brewery? And uh, if anyone's listening and they were about to start their software company, but to say, hey, you know what? This sounds like more fun. What's your advice?
1: It's different now than it was when we started. When we started, there were 33 microbreweries in the country. There were 40 other brewing companies in the country, you know, big companies. Today, there are more than 400 microbreweries and regional breweries like ours in the country. And there are about 1,000 brewery restaurants across the country. So it's a little more crowded market than it used to be. And I think the cost of entry is higher than it used to be. But, you know, every year there are more and more coming on on board. So uh, if you got what it takes... uh, Give it a shot.
0: Great. Well, thanks for all the uh, great words of wisdom. And uh, what a great place to have here. Thanks a lot for coming on the show.
1: Thank you, Greg. I hope you enjoyed
0: this interview as much as I did. I actually reflected on this interview on Steve's story quite a bit as I was bootstrapping my own businesses, muckrack, and the Shorty Awards. I always thought of that term entrepreneurial terror that Steve shared. It's really hard bootstrapping but I think it makes it all the more satisfying when it works. And that's why it's great to reflect on a story like Steve's. If you enjoyed this interview, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to thank Dana J, who left a review saying excellent interviews. Greg Gallant is so good at keeping the conversation focused and getting the most relevant information out of his interviewees. Thank you, Dana. And everyone, please spread the word. If you have feedback, just tweet me or hit me up on Instagram. I'm just at Gregory on both platforms. Signed up really early. Love starting things early. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Venture Voice.